hear the unity with which we are speaking those words of belief, isn't it? Please take your scripture and turn to the next to last chapter in John. That is chapter 20. We'll be looking at that whole chapter this morning. We've kind of taken the last four or five weeks to to slowly wander through Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection using the Apostles' Creed as kind of the outline. And here we are on the third day he rose again. I don't know if uh, any of you have seen the movie, well, I'm sure you have, National Treasure, some of you. It's a, it's a, I think it's a really fun movie. It's, it's a movie based around the, a treasure, treasure uh, seeker named Ben Gates, who is seeking the, and his family is seeking the um, treasure of the Knights Templar. This, this mystical treasure, a treasure that, that is so great that if any one person or, or country were to possess this great wealth, it would become too powerful. So they, they have been hiding it for centuries and centuries and centuries uh, from people and from countries. And Ben Gates uh, is on in this movie is searching for this great treasure. And, and it, as the movie opens, he's on the, uh, some, in some Arctic plain and he's searching for a ship called the Charlotte. And if you remember the movie, he finds the ship and he finds a clue to this great treasure. And the clue is a meerschaum pipe. A meerschaum pipe. If you look up on the overhead, you can see a picture of, of what a meerschaum pipe is. It's a pipe with uh, ornate uh, decor- decorations on the pipe. And he, he finds this. And this pipe leads to a clue, which leads to another clue, which leads to another clue and another clue. And that's, the, that's how this, the movie progresses from clue to clue. And, and it, towards the end of the movie, you find Ben Gates and his, his troop at a dead end in a little room. And they're all looking at each other and saying, that's it, the clues have led us here, but it's a dead end. And then the, the camera focuses in on Nicolas Cage, who plays Ben Gates, and he takes out the meerschaum pipe and he rolls it in his hand. And you hear him whisper under his breath, could it be that simple? Then he takes the pipe and he inserts it into the wall and it serves as a key and the walls part, and there is this great treasure. I put it to you today that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the meerschaum pipe of the gospel. It's the hinge. And I do want to say to you today, it's as simple as believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which opens up the greatest treasure known to man, that is eternal life. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 20. Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter, who had been behind, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that what she, all that she had seen. On the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed that they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve who was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus did many, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Like National Treasure, John has, has taken us in these last 20 chapters on an adventure through the life of Jesus, his divine origins in chapter 1, his virgin birth, his sinless life throughout his ministry, 
Just recently, we've, we've looked at in depth his substituting, atoning death for you and me. And now he brings us to the end, that, that great room that seems like a dead end, the resurrection. And he asks us three questions in this text. John is asking and putting forth three questions in this text. And the first question is, do you believe the supernatural? Do you believe the supernatural? We see this specifically in the first nine verses of our text today. These are the verses where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she sees that the tomb is open. The great rock with the seal has been broken and rolled aside. And she sees that the tomb is empty and she runs back and she tells the disciples they've stolen the body. The body's gone and they've stolen it. And Peter and John, who is that, that young disciple who outran Peter, they run to the tomb and John gets there first and peers in. And Peter, of course, being Peter, runs right into the tomb. And then John comes in alongside as well. Jesus is indeed gone from the tomb. But here, I want to encourage us to be careful. The empty tomb is not what these disciples are interested in. Did you notice that? They're not interested in the empty tomb. In 1998, the decision was made by the family of Addie Mae Collins to exhume her body and rebury her in another cemetery. Addie Mae Collins was one of the four young African-American girls who in 1963 was, was killed when white supremacists blew up a, a black church in the South. Some of you might remember that. The family would return to this grave year after year and pray and leave flowers at this grave. So you can imagine how distraught the family was when they discovered that the body wasn't there, that the grave was empty. And they scrambled to figure out what happened. Several possibilities were raised, some malicious record-keeping, hiding the body, some just innocent, faulty records, faulty filing. It was even put forth that they put the tombstone just at the wrong site. But what was never put forth was that Addie Mae Collins was resurrected from the dead. As Lee Strobel says in A Case for Christ, an empty grave does not a resurrection make. Peter and John were not interested in the empty grave, even though we sing about it, and that's fine to sing about it. But that's not what they were interested in. Just because the tomb is empty does not mean something supernatural took place. No, the disciples were focused on what? On the grave clothes. Look with me at verse 5. So both were running and John gets there first. And he bent in and it says in the NIV translation, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. That Greek word for looked is, is just a word that means glanced or, or just peered very, very uh, briefly. 
And then Peter, if you look on at verse 6, Peter goes into the tomb when he arrives, and it says there in verse 6, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. That Greek word there, saw, it means to study. So Peter was studying the burial clothes. And then in the following verse, you see John entering the tomb and he says he, it, he saw the burial clothes and he believed. And that's a third Greek word that means he saw with understanding. Something that John looked at at the burial clothes made him believe. He saw and believed. What did John see that made him go, oh, of oh. You have to know a little bit of something about the burial practices 2,000 years ago of the Jews. What they would do is they would, they would take strips of linen and they would wrap, wrap pretty much the torso up to the shoulders. And then they would leave the shoulders bare, the neck bare, and part of the head bare. And then they would take one strip of linen, a complete strip of linen, and they would wrap the head like a turban. And all this time they were applying spices to the body and linen. And so what did John see that made him believe? What he saw was that the burial clothes were simply collapsed in place. Like the body, in the shape of the body, just collapsed in place. It was like the body inside had just vanished or, or come through the, the strips of linen and the turban and, the, and they just collapsed right in place. What drew Peter's attention and what made John believe was that the grave clothes were in the exact position of the body, but the body was gone. John suddenly realizes what had happened, that Jesus had simply come through the burial clothes, that Jesus was resurrected from the body, that nobody stole the body, that he didn't unwrap himself and the strips of linen everywhere, that Jesus is alive. That's what John got. He saw and he believed. As Tim Keller says, the only reason the stone was removed was so that we could see that Jesus is alive. Not stolen, not the wrong tomb, not waking up after fainting on the cross, supernaturally resurrected from the dead. And that's what this text puts forth as a question to everybody who reads it. The gospel asks each one of us, do you believe that the strips of linen and the turban was just collapsed in place? Do you believe the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The supernatural resurrection. Do you believe Jesus is alive? That's what John is putting forth. This is his great climax to his gospel. If you want a rational, if you want a rational explanation for the empty tomb, there are many. But none of them describe, explain the grave clothes. None of those theories. None of those rational theories of stolen body or waking up, or wrong tomb. None of them explain the burial clothes. And that's why John is focused on the burial clothes. 
Any and all who call themselves Christians, if you're here and you call yourself a born-again Christian believer, if you believe the gospel, if you put your faith in Christ, you have to believe that the burial clothes were simply collapsed. That Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And that that resurrection is not rational. In other words, it can't be explained by rational thought. It's a supernatural event. So the first thing question that John asks is, do you believe in the supernatural resurrection? But the second question John wants to put to us and challenge us with is, not only do you believe in the supernatural, but do you believe in the historical? So Christian, do you believe in the supernatural? And do you also believe in the historical? Before the advent of the camera, if you wanted to prove anything in history, it was through eyewitnesses. If you wanted to prove anything, it was through eyewitnesses. People who were there, people who experienced it, people who saw it. I don't know if you watched the series Band of Brothers. I, I go back to this again and again. I love that HBO series, Band of Brothers. If you haven't seen it, it's a... It's a series, mini-series that he did about Easy Company, the 101st Airborne, as they came in on D-Day and then their subsequent uh, march all the way to Berlin and beyond. It's a great mini-series. It tells the true story of this amazing band of brothers, the 101st Airborne. But what I really found interesting, personally, was that every episode started with an eyewitness who was there, somebody that was in Easy Company telling a story, a real story that they experienced that then the subsequent series was going to, to show. John here is giving us three eyewitness accounts of what happened on the day of Jesus' resurrection. We first have Mary's eyewitness account here. Mary's eyewitness account is interesting because we see that she is not even thinking in terms of resurrection. Did you, pick up, did you pick up on that? She's not even thinking in those terms. That's not a category for her. That's what makes the, Mary's testimony actually so powerful. She assumes the body's stolen. And then even when she sees Jesus, I don't think it was a, it was a you know, Luke 24 road to Emmaus type thing where he was disguising himself. I think that she just did not have a category for resurrection and she looked at him and assumed he was a gardener. She's experiencing what psychologists have called the perception of incongruity. Back in 1949, some scientists did an experiment on Ivy League students where they would take them into a room and they had a deck of cards and in that deck of cards, that normal deck of cards, were six trick cards. By trick cards, they were, uh, you know, spades were not black, they were red, and, and clubs and, and hearts were not red, they were black. So they, they were, there were six of these cards in there. And researchers discovered as they showed these cards to these kids and just had them say what the cards were as they showed them, they, they found two things. First, it took students four times longer to answer when they said, what card is this? Because their mind was confused with the trick cards. The student's brain struggled to process something out of the ordinary. 
But most interesting is that they observed the students compromising on what they saw. For instance, when they saw a red six of clubs, they described it as a six of clubs that was illuminated with a red glow. In other words, the participants often would, couldn't accept the facts of what they saw, and so they changed the facts. The researchers called their study the perception of incongruity, which simply means that when we encounter something that doesn't fit our worldview, we tend to compromise and make it fit into our assumptions or into something that will work. I think that's exactly what Mary was going through. She was seeing these things, and she was compromising. She, was, she, she wasn't saying he's resurrected. It's stolen. When she saw Jesus, she could, didn't have a category for resurrection, so she said it was the gardener in her mind. Mary, a follower of Jesus, is not even thinking in terms of a resurrection. And it's not until Jesus speaks her name, which she probably heard hundreds and hundreds of times in the ministry. It's not until he says, Mary, that it clicks for her. She realizes it's Jesus. It's her Rabboni. He's alive. That's what makes her such a powerful eyewitness. Secondly, we have the eyewitness of the ten disciples. Here in verses 19 through 23, we have the appearance of Jesus to the ten. And here they are, the men who are supposed to take up the legacy of Jesus, continue the ministry. Here are these founding fathers of Christianity, the Washingtons and Adams and Jeffersons of our faith. And what are they doing? If you look at your text, they are behind locked doors in an undisclosed location, fearing for their lives. Fearing that what has happened to their leader is going to happen to them. Yet that is precisely what makes their eyewitness testimony so credible. From that night on, what made them so bold? What changed them? What transformed them into what we now know as these amazing men who went around the world, didn't care about what happened to them as long as they got the message out of Jesus Christ? What changed them? It was the seeing the resurrection, resurrected Jesus Christ. As apologist... Uh, Josh McDowell says, think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. And then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. It's absurd. One of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is the quick transformation of the disciples. Of courage to speak the name of Jesus. And by the way, by way of quick application here, that is an evidence in you and I of true saving faith. Courage to speak the name of Jesus. 
If you recall, if you call yourself a born-again believer and yet never open your mouth to talk about Christ except at church, there's a challenge there for you. And maybe an admonition there for you. If you are overcome with fear and that fear absolutely buttons your mouth, you might believe in God, but you might not have true saving faith. Now, I'm not saying that every other sentence has to be about Christ as you leave the, the, the church and the gathering. I'm not saying that. But if you only have spiritual, gospel-filled conversations here at church, and that's it, if there's no resurrection conviction in your conversations, well, listen to what Paul says to his young apprentice, apprentice in Second Timothy. For the Spirit of God, Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. One of the effects of believing the resurrection, of having true saving faith, is conversational courage. But that doesn't mean that you don't have doubts. And that's what the appearance to Thomas tells us, the third eyewitness. In verses 24 to 29, here we have Thomas, that one disciple that wasn't there on that Sunday evening. And here John is dealing with resurrection doubt head on. Thomas simply doesn't believe that Jesus is resurrection, is resurrected. He just doesn't believe. And he says, hey, listen, unless I see him, unless I touch him, I'm not going to believe. No way. Doubt. Serious doubt about the resurrection. I think Thomas's eyewitness account is important for all believers because it proves that doubt is not the unforgivable sin. I just want to free you from that right now. I mean, whether you trust me, that's a different story. I just want to free you from that. Doubt is not sin. Why do I pause? I want you to hear me. Doubt is not the unforgivable sin. Christian author Madeline Langle, I like what she wrote about this. She said, those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in heart, anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, And even at times without despair, only believe in the idea of God, but not in God himself. That's challenging, guys. Do you realize what she is saying? That the idea that you can believe in God and the gospel, that you can believe in God and the gospel and have doubts. And if you don't, At best, that's intellectual dishonesty. At worst, it's spiritually dangerous. Now, I'm not encouraging you to doubt. 
but I'm releasing you from the fear of doubting. Because what I see clearly in our text today is we shouldn't be afraid of doubt. We shouldn't be afraid that, that the gospel cannot confront those doubts. That, that the gospel cannot answer tough questions. Faith and doubt can and do coexist. One of my life verses is Mark 9.24 where you have Jesus going to, to uh, heal this, this child and the father approaches him and, and they have a, a, a dialogue and the father says, listen, if you can heal my son, please do. And Jesus turns to him and, I, and, and the question he says, he says, if I can. For that person who has faith, Everything is possible. And you know what the man's reaction to that is? I believe. Help my unbelief. Doubt and faith can and do coexist. Abraham had doubts. He broke, he, he, he didn't believe in the promises. I mean, Hagar and Ishmael are examples of that. David. Talk about anguish, despair, and doubts. Read the Psalms. The disciples behind closed doors. Thomas saying, forget about it. Doubts are not sinful. But what is potentially dangerous, and that's why I said this, is what you do with doubts. And I want to encourage you in one area. Don't dismiss them. Don't, don't just dismiss them out of mind. Don't ignore your doubts. Don't say, I can't have faith and, and, believe, and have this doubt. Don't ignore your doubts. Many people don't allow themselves to entertain doubt because they think that it's sinful or maybe closer to the bone. They think the gospel cannot stand underneath that question. I think that's why Thomas's encounter is so powerful. Thomas is doubting the central doctrine of our faith people. And Jesus appears to him and proves the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus, simply put, is one of the most well-documented events in history. Do you know that? That's, I think that, that's what Paul was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit when he's writing to the Corinthian church in what we call the 15th chapter. And he says, What I've received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And here's what he says after that. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, he's going, go check it out. Most of them are still alive. But then he says, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. The resurrection is historical. That's why John brings the eyewitness accounts to bear. Do you believe the historical eyewitnesses, John says? Do you believe the supernatural, John asks? And finally, he puts it right on the line and says, 
hey, listen, <laughs> do you believe? I mean, that, that's what verses 30 and 31 are all about. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, and the Son of God divine. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's the purpose of John's gospel. As we've gone through it over the past several months, I've brought this, this text to bear. That's the purpose of what John is doing, is, is gathering this evidence so that you may believe. That's the purpose of the seven miracles. That's the purpose of the eighth miracle, the resurrection that he put here in the text, that you might believe and have eternal life. But here I want to make an important distinction that I mentioned before, but I want to flesh out. A distinction between believing something is true and having saving faith. Because, and maybe you've ne- this has never been explained to you, Mark Johnson in his commentary writes, this passage distinguishes true saving faith from a faith that merely acknowledges that certain things are true. Do you hear the difference? This is very important, brothers and sisters, that you understand this. In other words, there's a big difference between believing something is true and having saving faith. There is a faith and there's a saving faith. There is belief and there's saving belief. So what's saving faith? Saving faith, belief that gives eternal life, is not simply acknowledging that the gospel is true. I hope the weight and the gravity of that is grasping you. Because maybe you've never this has never been explained to you before. Saving faith, belief that gives eternal life, is not simply acknowledging the truths of the gospel. James, in his epistle, writes in the second chapter, the 19th verse, he writes this. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you know what that verse is actually telling us? The principle that that verse is telling us is is amazing. That Satan and his minions believe that there's a God. Great. That's easy. Let me take it a step further. They believe that Jesus is God. They believe in the virgin birth. It's true. They believe that Jesus lived a sinful life. Yeah, he did. Satan is is nodding his head. Yep. Satan believes that the cross atoned for sin. It's true. Satan believes in the miracles of Jesus. Satan believes, he reads the Gospel of John and goes, yep, mm-hmm. He would be- nod his head and say, it's true, Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
Satan would say, yep, the resurrection. He, re- he rose from the dead. Is he coming again? Yeah, he's coming again. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he could probably read the Apostles' Creed and go, yep. Yeah, that's not true. As we do, right? But I think he would say, I think we would all say, that Satan isn't saved. So, pastor... What's the catch here? What's the difference between believing something is true and having saving faith? There's one thing the devil would stop nodding his head on. And you read it today. It's in verse 28 of John chapter 20. When Jesus shows himself and he touches the resurrected Jesus, he cries out, my Lord and my God. For Thomas, who knew Jesus was God, who saw the miracles, who understood the cross, who now believes the resurrection, goes from something that he believes is true to saving faith. And what is it? He submits to Christ's lordship, doesn't he? He's God, yeah, my God. But he also says, my Lord, I'm yours. We say it in a vernacular like this, we give our lives to Christ. But do you understand what you're saying when you say that? Let me rephrase that. Do you live that? Because that's the difference between knowing something is true, the gospel, and having saving faith, submitting to the lordship of Christ. And that's something the devil will not do. But that is something that every true Christian has to do. Is Christ Lord of your life? That's the question that this text raises to each and every person who calls themselves a Christian. Do you believe the truths of the gospel? Yeah, I'll I'll read the Apostles' Creed. And secondly, is Jesus your Lord and not just what you claim to be Savior? Is he on the throne of your heart? Does he dictate and direct the direction of your life? If you look back over your shoulder, do you see points in your life where because of your faith and because of what Christ directs you to do, the course of your life has been changed. Let me give you a quick litmus test of lordship. Is there evidence of sacrifice in your life that is directly linked to your faith? Are there things that you would like to do but don't do because of your faith in Christ. Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Mark Twain is famous for saying, it's not the things I know in the Bible that scare me, it's the things I don't know. Well, now you know something. 
It's not just saying the Apostles' Creed, people, and believing it. Satan can believe that. It's the Lordship. Do you submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ? I'll close with what Paul's simple formula for salvation is in Romans chapter 10. You all know it. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the gospel, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you to apply these words to my heart first and foremost. And Spirit, apply them to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.